We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. And the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. The Toronto Blue Jays are out of the playoffs. Well, I guess there's always the Leafs. Ha! Ah, just kidding. Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, it's a cheeky boy, isn't it? He's just a cheeky boy rubbing the... How's Boston doing? Are they, are they going to be good this year? They're going to be a powerhouse, aren't they? Huh? Yeah, back at you. All right, Big Ben spinning the Van Halen on this day in 2020. Sad. Uh, we lost Eddie Van Halen at the age of 65. Passes away on this day in 2020. Wildly hailed as one of the greatest guitarists who ever lived, uh, which, you know, is an ongoing debate. I remember somebody, uh, maybe it was Rolling Stone, I don't know, uh, asked, uh, asked Eric Clapton what it was like to be the greatest living guitar player. And he goes, I don't know, ask Prince. And this was obviously before Prince passed away. So even those that have the title are always willing to push it to somebody else and uh, give them the credit too. So anyway, playing a bit of Van Halen over the course of uh, this afternoon. Uh, to commemorate that and it being an all request friday if you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite big ben i'll get that on for you as well as your last word uh always looking to engage feel free talk text and as i said hammerhead trivia coming up uh, after the uh, five o'clock news pair of tickets to shipyard kitchen party a tom thompson's wake on october 23rd at sanderson center and a four pack of tickets to the toronto rv show uh running through october 13 to the 15th at the toronto congress center all all could be yours. All right. What do we got going on? Uh, Thanksgiving weekend. And it was funny because the uh, 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 Pierre Polyev, the leader of the opposition and NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, have been hammering uh, the government all week like, hey, man, grocery prices, you're supposed to you're supposed to get us some help from, uh, you know, by Thanksgiving. And of course, uh, they get up and, and yesterday make an announcement, which is really things that they've already said and you might remember this time last year we were talking about how uh grocers normally ask their suppliers to freeze prices between now and christmas which stabilize prices so this is part of the industry anyway so uh it, it looks like uh because there's so much heat in the kitchen that uh, uh you know it pays to get out in front of it uh with the minister champagne and um and basically repeat the same stuff over and over again so happy thanksgiving hope Hopefully you can uh, afford to get through it. Uh, lots of people. I'll leave that. All right. Uh, what else we got? Oh, the unemployment rate holding pretty much steady at 5.5%. Uh, a bit of an increase in employment because obviously school's back. So everything associated with that and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, we're seeing a, uh, a little, well, 5.5 holding steady, as they say. All right. What else we got? Um, Jugmeet Singh, who we're going to have on the air coming up uh, a few minutes from now uh, after 320 and leader of the uh, federal MDP. He was on a tear today. He was on an absolute tear in the prime minister's home riding, uh, yelling about grocery prices and responsibility or, uh, sorry, affordability and whose responsibility that is and la 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 la. And he, he was, he was on fire and, you know, I'm sitting and I'm listening to him and I'm saying, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, go, 
You know, that's your job. You're in opposition. But then he's not. He's a partner in the government, with the government. And if there is anyone who can help us with any of this, it's the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh. So uh, I'm going to plane out and ask him when he gets on, and I'm sure they're listening, uh, and we'll have an answer ready. But, like, if this has, has, has got you so flaming mad, what is it going to take to call an election? Because if you look at the polls, Canadians want change. Oh, Canadians don't want an election. Well, Canadians never want an election. But you know what? They really don't have to do anything other than show up and cast a ballot. So uh, I don't think you're ever going to get them to say anything different. But clearly with what polls are saying and the frustration and what we're hearing about young people and giving up on buying a home and all of this other stuff and not wanting to have kids, surely, surely that is enough for change. And I'm not sure how you can keep standing up and screaming uh, just to get a health, uh, just to get a pharmacare thing, just to get a, a dental, like, uh, like the, we're not talking about a very small segment of the population here. We're talking about damn near all the population that this is affecting. We are just getting nickel and dime to death. And it's great to hear Jugmeet Singh being an opposition leader. But at the end of the day, he's also a partner and has the ability to pull the plug. Does he think he can beat Justin Trudeau? Does he think he can beat Pierre Polyev? We're going to ask him. Because listening to leaders scream and yell at each other while doing nothing just divides and frustrates the Canadian population heading into a long weekend. So, again... (laughs) Walk the talk. What is it going to take? Do you think you can beat him or Pierre Polyev? Because the frustration that is coming out of your voice is one that's being, you know, felt across the country. So we're not doing anything so we can get pharmacare. To me, that just seems ludicrous. Um, because the majority of the population is screaming for change right now. And we're going to ask Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP, whether he thinks he has the uh, what it takes to be the leader of either the opposition or the government and what it is going to take to set those wheels in motion. Heading into Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we were told a few weeks ago that we'd see relief by uh, Thanksgiving weekend on grocery prices, uh, and obviously the government getting uh, lots of uh, hits in in the House of Commons this week over uh, that, and when something was coming, and then voila, we have an announcement yesterday of, of really, um, you know, I'm not sure how much change we're going to see or what is coming soon, per se. Uh, NDP leader, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been... Been on a tear today and uh, in Justin Trudeau's uh, home riding in what he calls out-of-touch response to grocery prices. And he's with us now, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP. Mr. Singh, great to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks. It's an honor to be on the show. So, uh, you again, you were pretty vocal today, very passionate, very frustrated, ranting about uh, that the, the Prime Minister isn't doing enough. We all feel incredibly helpless here because there is no election. We have no voice uh, at, at this point. However, you obviously have a partnership with this government, and, and you have a lot of sway. And, and if worse comes to worse, you can trigger, trigger an election. W- what can you do to fix this? Are you doing enough to help other than just rant? and raving 
Well, this is uh, the question. Do people want an election or do people want the prices of the groceries to come down? I'm speaking with people today. I was in uh, right in front of a grocery store and people are telling me they want the prices down. And the reality is the prices of food have been outpacing inflation for almost two years. It's been 21 months. And in 21 months, the liberal government and Justin Trudeau only just woke up to it when they saw that they were plummeting in the polls. We want to use this opportunity to force them to do more. Their plan, after two years of inaction, was to ask the greedy CEOs that jacked up the prices, ask them nicely to then stabilize the prices. And we know that this is the approach of both the conservatives and the liberals. The conservatives' prices went up significantly when they were in power, and they gave big corporate tax giveaways to these corporations. They didn't take on the corporate greed. And now more and more economists and experts are saying, what is the significant driver of the cost of food going up. The major driver is corporate greed. And we're seeing that across the board. These companies are Uh, seeing an opportunity to make more money and are doing so. So what we're proposing is let's strengthen the laws that actually protect consumers. There is a competition bureau in Canada. We do not have the same type of laws that we would have in other countries. When When bread prices were fixed, and that was a proven fact in this country, the large companies that did that and the CEOs got really no penalty, minor fines. And in the States when it happened, the CEO went to jail. And I think that's appropriate. That's the level of sanction that's necessary. If you're going to jack up the prices of food and make it so that thousands of people, millions of people maybe, are struggling to buy food because you're making more profits unfairly with collusion, and the penalty you get is a minor fine, that's wrong. And that's Mr. Singh, you know, you said election, you know, you're talking to people and, uh, you know, they don't want an election. They want prices to come down. I would suggest you could have an election probably quicker than you'll have uh, more effective in bringing the prices down any substantial uh, substantial means to affect anybody. I mean, you could say the same thing about housing. People want housing or or pharmacare rather than election. Well, there's one way to guarantee that, and that's you call an election and you win. Can you Not beat Judge? The, the way to guarantee it is to get things done now is to use the power that we have to get things done right now and right in front of us. You'll see other parties that their, their goal is to benefit themselves. And this is kind of what the conservatives do. They talk a lot about caring about housing. When they were in power. They lost 800,000 affordable homes. Housing prices went up by 60% when they were in power. Bread price fixing happened when they were in power. Corporations were making lots of profits off the of people. But clearly, Mr. Singh, power. clearly, Mr. Singh, you have a partnership with Jug, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau. So if anyone has his ear, it is you, and we're still in the mess that we're in. So again, at what point, at what point do you think you can beat the prime minister or beat the leader of the opposition and actually implement what you're talking about? Because at well, this point, I think, I, I think a lot of people are just associating you with the liberals and keeping them Well, let's talk about implementing. We brought in dental care for kids under 12. And that means that a family that I met in Edmonton, Priyana and her five kids. Mr. Singh, with all due respect, what about the the other 80% of the population? What about the the sentence? I was just in the middle of my sentence. She got five kids to see the dentist for the first time. And that's because we made them do it. By the end of this year, seniors are going to be able to get their, their teeth fixed because we forced them to do it. These are things that the liberals and conservatives voted against. We're delivering results. What, can what about the other 80% government that they what ab- to actually make people's lives better? They can't point to things because they're not about delivering for people. Our goal is to deliver, and we're forcing this government. We're not propping up anybody. We're forcing liberals to do things that they would not have otherwise done. 
We've got a document that lays it all out. We're making it out. What about the other 80% of the population, the middle class that everybody is wanting to join, everybody's talking about, but nobody's listening to? It's great to get all of this for the, 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 the small percentage of people that are suffering. Everybody wants to do that. But at the expense of everything else, by letting this government continue, I think a lot of people are We're questioning that, Mr. that are Singh. less than 70,000. That's, that's, that's a serious, significant portion of That's the plan that we're talking about. Seniors that earn less than 70000 are going to be able to get their teeth fixed. We're not talking about the most marginalized. We're talking about lots of people, millions of seniors. And I, when I speak to a senior who says, I can't afford to get my teeth fixed, even though I worked my whole life and I've got an okay pension, but I can't afford, I'm telling that senior, I'm going to get your teeth fixed. Yeah, that's important. That's serious. That's a significant portion of the population. When it's all said and done... It's going to be nine million Canadians, basically one in four. We have about close. What do you? But what do you say to the? What do you say to the people? Because we made that happen. What do you say to the young people who? What do you say to the young people who can't afford rent? The young people who can't afford to buy a house, who've given up on uh, on the dream of having a home, of or even giving up having a family. Uh, What about those people? I I mean, let me respond to them. I would say, you know what? You've been let down by liberals and conservatives. They set up this housing market. That is awesome if you're a rich investor. It's great as a stock market. It is awesome to make lots of money off of, but it's not good for you and your family. And that was purposely designed by liberals and conservatives. They were the ones who've been in power since the formation of this country at the federal level. It's liberals and conservatives. They've both been in power. They set up this housing market that we're in right now. And when the Mr. conservatives were in power for almost 10 years, the prices of housing went up by 60%. When the conservatives have been, when the liberals have been in power, same thing. Both of them are not going to fix this problem. But we've got to so get in there. Get in there, Mr. Singh. Get in there and That's beat them. Right Why now. can't you get in there right and beat them? We're going to make things happen. We're making things happen right now. We're getting dental care done. We've got GSD rebates doubled. We're getting things done concretely to make people's lives better. Because for us, it's not about power for power's sake. And that's what you'll see from both the liberals and the conservatives. They want power just to be in power. You Democrats have used our power for people. Everything that we're proud of as a country our healthcare system, Tommy Douglas brought that in when he had an opportunity of power. If you look at our old age security, you look at our CPP, everything we're proud of was brought in when new Democrats have a position of power, we made things happen. In that same tradition, we're bringing in dental care. Every single thing that Canadians are proud of in terms of our social safety net, our healthcare system, our old age pension, our CPP, each one of those things was brought in when new Democrats were there, not by conservatives, not by liberals. And that's what we're doing right now. We're doing exactly what we've always done. In the tradition of Tommy Douglas, we're using a power and we're getting results. The liberals can't say they've done this because they voted against it. The conservatives have been in power in two minority governments. They can't list a single victory that they've been able to achieve for people. What a shame. What an embarrassment. You have that much power as official opposition of this country and you can't get anything done for people. We're getting things done. You control uh, the, the government that's in power. We'd love to see if you can get out there and lead. Jugmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP, prime minister, we're hoping. Maybe not. Are you going to run? We'd love to see it. Thank you so much, Jugmeet Singh. Very much uh, appreciated. Absolutely. Running for prime minister. That's the plan. All right. Get going. 
this is a, a pretty cool thing that's happened here. And the transition of uh, what was once St. Helens Catholic Elementary School, now the uh, the home of the Bendingen Community Hub, a well-being center, new indigenous health center and social services center will be built in Hamilton, transforming indigenous health care throughout the region at 785 Britannia Avenue. To talk more about all of this, Joanne Matina with us, Acting Chief Executive Officer and Chief Operating Officer, Aboriginal Health Center, 678 Main Street East, and with us now. Joanne, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Mm-hmm. How about you? So far, so good. Thanks so much, Joanne, for taking the time. So first, tell us about what is happening here at the site of uh, of the old uh, St. Helens Catholic Elementary School. Okay, so yes, um, last week we celebrated not only our 25th anniversary, but a ceremonial signing with the city of Hamilton uh, to transfer the land from the city of Hamilton to the Bindigan Partnership, which is the Dwight Desne Aboriginal Health Center, Nawasa Kandasman Take, and Ontario Aboriginal Housing Services. And we are going to be using the site to be building a campus-like model of buildings that will provide health, social services, um, child care and lifelong learning and housing support for the Indigenous community and mainstream community in the requesting area all on one site. And this is not the same building. You're, you're leveling that, and this is a new campus-style uh, uh, situation. Is that accurate? That's correct. It will be three uh, separate buildings, but we're looking at how we can create interconnectivity between all three. And what are the three services again, the three buildings? What are they suited for? What are they doing? What's their objective? Yeah, so the Duarte Desne, we're an Aboriginal Health Access Center. So we uh, provide not only primary health care services, but we also do mental health and wellness support. We do healthy living support. We have a mobile clinic that goes out. And we do traditional healing and cultural wellness and outreach. Nawasa Kandasa and Teg, uh, they are a lifelong learning center. They specialize in early childhood development and language uh, classes but they also have family support and they operate the urban farm that's currently on that site. And then Ontario Aboriginal Housing Services is looking about to build anywhere between 80 to 100 units on that site as well. Wow. So a big housing uh, accomplishment as well. How significant is it to have a center like this in Hamilton? It's very significant. We know that, um, the Indigenous population is a very um, marginalized population, and we find our population is moving east. So having all those services in one-stop shop means, you know, maybe not taking um, bus fare away from uh, families to go somewhere else, or maybe it's another meal that they can have. So providing those wraparound services is really important, and it's the way that the Indigenous community lives. It's the way they are, like always providing all the services for what we need. The Dwight Desmond's name is Cayuga, standing for taking care of each other amongst ourselves. And that's what we want to do. Uh, we understand McMaster is a part of this, their Department of Family Medicine. What is their relationship with all of this? So the Department of Family Medicine is uh, partnering with the Dwight Desmond uh, to provide some primary care services to the local community. At the Dwight Desmond, our primary care services are mandated for the urban indigenous population. So by partnering with Department of Family Medicine, we can actually provide the primary health care services to the local residents. And we know that that residents, that neighborhood, the McQuesta neighborhood is in a health care desert. So it's giving the local residents opportunities to have the primary health care provided 
In addition, it's also teaching learners how to uh, provide care in a culturally safe and appropriate uh, setting. That was my next question, Joanne. What does Matt get out of this? How do they learn from this? So their learners are going to actually have a unique opportunity that they're going to be there in this campus-like setting where all the supports that we wrap around the Indigenous community will be wrapped around all their patients and their learning. So as the new learners are coming in, they're always going to be learning in the Indigenous way of knowing and being how to provide that care. This is this is quite the two-way street, isn't it? Yes. It, it kind of is like we're both working side by side, and uh, we're going to work together to make sure that everybody is taken care of. What can the non-Indigenous community learn from this? Is there anything to be learned from this, from this? uh, Well, I'll leave it at that. There's always an opportunity to learn, right? So the guiding principles behind the Bindigan Wellbeing Center is the Seven Grandfather Teachings, which is an Anishinaabic culture um, teaching. And they stand for wisdom, love, bravery, truth, respect, honesty, and humility. And by living your life that way, and having all those resources available, it's going to create such a dynamic of wholesome services wrapped around that individual for them to flourish and grow. And we'll be doing that whether or not you're Indigenous or not. In the name Bindigan itself means come on in, welcome, and that's what we want. We want everybody to feel welcome. Hmm. Uh, the Bindigan Wellbeing Center, a new Indigenous Health and Social Services Center, will be built in Hamilton, transforming Indigenous health care throughout the region at the former site of the St. Helens Catholic Elementary School, uh, 785 Britannia Avenue. Joanne Matina has been with us, Acting Chief Executive Officer and Chief Operating Officer of Original Health Center, 8, uh, 678 Main Street East. Uh, Joanne, thanks so much for taking the time. Good luck with this moving forward. Is there a timeline here, Joanne? When do you have to hope to see this completed? Hopefully for completion on March 31st, 2028. All right, we'll chat then. Joanne, good luck. Thanks for the time. No time, thank you. Tasha Carradine has written has written a article in the National Post. National Pharmacare plan too high a price to pay to keep the Liberals in power. And to talk more about all of this, Tasha Carradine is with us, journalist, uh, writer in the National Post, G Zero Media, and her Substack page. In my opinion, author of the Right Path. Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I am. Thank you. Happy early Thanksgiving. <laughs> and back at you, Tasha. So um, <laughs> Jagmeet Singh was on a tear today in the Prime Minister's uh, riding, and in, 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 I've, I've never heard him so passionate, or certainly not in a while. <laughs> and I thought, well, why don't you do something then? Why don't you, like, get him on the phone? And sure enough, he came on, and 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 he started on the spiel, and I, I kind of interrupted him, but I said, like, you're the guy, we're all frustrated. And then listening to this guy rile us all up, um, he's the one that can actually do something. And I pushed him to, uh, you know, hit the trigger, do whatever. Can you beat these two? And he said, it's not about power. It's about making change. Can this guy beat Pierre Polyev or Justin Trudeau? No. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, 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 Jagmeet Singh is uh, is an enigma wrapped in a mystery um, to a lot of people because he's been keeping this government afloat, and his numbers also have gotten really low in opinion polls. Yeah. And it's kind of obvious to anyone that if the election were held today, that NDP would do worse than it is with those seats. And if even if the election's held in a couple of years, they may well lose seats. So they're hanging in for the ride. Um, I did see a piece today, and I've heard this before that. 
you know, he has also personal interests because his pension vests in 2025. Yeah. You have to <laughs> serve six years before you get your parliamentary pension. And he's got a couple million dollars of potential earnings of pension after he's 55. I mean, you don't like to think that's a motivation. But honestly, at this point, um, you know, you do you do wonder because the NDP is is not doing better by hanging in there. In fact, if anything, yeah. they're getting the ire of a lot of people. So uh, your uh, your piece today in the, in the National Post about PharmaCare, he's mm-hmm. pushing that really hard and that this is what's going to, you know, he's using this leverage to, uh, with the balance of power to, to get this through. Um, your piece is on this. Can we afford it? Is it the right thing to do? Quebec kind of has a balance uh, uh, of two. So uh, is this the right way to go? It's not the right way to go. Uh, it's not the right way to go for a couple of reasons. One is um, that we don't need it. And this is the the thing that people, many people don't know. Statistics Canada did a study last year and found that um, you've got in total about 8% of all Canadians um, who couldn't fill a prescription for, for reasons of cost. 8%. This is not a huge number of people and you can address their needs in other ways. You can have targeted mm-hmm. assistance for people who have, you know, really high drug costs that they're out of pocket, they cannot pay, or people on low income who can't pay even a reasonable or, or smaller cost, you can find those people and, and make sure that those gaps are filled. But for the other, 92% of people, um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were not, not filled. Probably their insurance paid for it through work or other insurance or provincial drug plans. They exist, right? Quebec has its own pharmacare plan. Yeah. Uh, so there's no need for that reason. But the other reason is what's happened in other jurisdictions like New Zealand and other places where they've gone to this model is that you end up with less choice of medications because the new cutting edge drugs don't get introduced mm. in those countries because their pharmacy, their pharmacare won't pay for them because they're too pricey. And there's a cap that's been put on by the by the government. Your insurance might have still paid for them, but oh, you're not allowed insurance now because it's pharmacare, right? It's all public. So what happens? You don't get access to those drugs. And in some cases, that could be a life-threatening situation. Kind of like being in a global pandemic without a vaccine. Kind of. Well, actually, it's funny. I wrote about that. I, wrote about that. I think it was um, 20, uh, 2022 or 2021 and said, you know what? We weren't getting the vaccine in a timely way. And the irony was, I said at the time, is maybe because the government has gotten really on the wrong side of all the pharma companies because they were paving the way for pharmacare. By trying to drop the price ceiling that they would pay for drugs by changing the number of countries, the countries that we used as a baseline for those prices, they removed the United States in particular out of the equation to forcibly lower them. The result of that would have been the same thing was that drugs wouldn't have been introduced here. And, you know, uh, in the end, we got the vaccine. But still, you have to wonder where this government's head is at sometimes. Well, uh, you know, big bad farm is bad until there's a global pandemic. Then they're, you know, <laughs> they're your best it, right? friend. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I heard we were chasing generic, uh, generic drugs, which, you know, keeps the cost down. But again, that, you know, that doesn't do much for big pharma or the R&D that goes along with it. Where do you think this is going? Is this just going to continually run till it burns itself out? I mean, it, it's it's like watching, um, you know, a, a firework on the 24th of May. Does it just fizzle out or does this is there a point where he takes this uh, Jagmeet Singh in a different direction and, and tries to actually get some power. Well, he's given the government a deadline of the end of 2023 to pass Pharmacare. He had dental and pharma as part of the original deal, the confidence and supply agreement he had with the government in 2021. 
And that were those were two of the things on the list. So the argument he has is, well, if you don't deliver by the end of this year, and it doesn't have to be completely delivered, mind you, it's a sort of a framework that they want progress, uh, some kind of bill being passed, then we're going to pull the plug. So we're waiting. We're waiting, Scott. Will he pull the plug this time if they don't manage to pass something by the end of the year? The chances are they'll, they'll just put something on the order paper and get it done. And then Jagmeet Singh can say, oh, look, I've achieved this too, right? It's not going to help him get more seats, but he's claiming that's why he's sticking around. All right. Tasha Kierden with us, journalist, writer, National Post, G-Zero Media, and the latest in the National Post, uh, National Pharmacare Plan, too high a price to pay to keep the liberals in power. Tasha, always fun. Thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Art Gallery of Hamilton has an amazing lineup of events events this year for its 10-day festival of music, art, and performance. It runs October 12th through the 21st. Uh, Everything from panel discussions, workshops, uh, fringe festival shows, concerts, parties, and lots of art. Jordan Delfs with us, lead of festival operations with the Art Gallery of Hamilton and with us now. Jordan, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Uh, it's that time of year again. So tell us what you got, what you've got going on. What's, uh, tell us all about this festival. Yeah. So this is our second year running the AGH festival as a multidisciplinary art celebration for 10 days. We are putting on around 30 events that range from performance art, music, visual art, dance, kind of every, a little bit of everything for everyone. We're really excited about it. And different from this year to last. So last year was the first year that we ran this multidisciplinary festival. Each year we theme it around the exhibitions that we have up in the gallery. And so this year we have five really great exhibitions uh, that are brand new to the gallery. And we're really excited to be able to interpret those into this year's events. Can you tell us a bit more about them? What can we see when we go? Absolutely. So our opening night on Thursday, October 12th is called An Evening of Wonder. And that's going to be a really wholesome event where you can see the exhibitions that are on the gallery, talk with the artists. There will be a DJ playing music. There's lots of really fun decor to really get you into the surreal kind of mood. Uh, And that event is completely free as well. And then going through the week, we have lots of uh, lots of events celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop that we're putting on with Concrete Canvas Festival. We have pop up theater performances with Hamilton Fringe Theater Company, uh, pop up uh, concerts, kind of all all sorts of stuff. How important is it to bring in new eyes to the uh, Art Gallery of Hamilton to expose this to people who haven't uh, experienced it before? It's very important. That's one of the main reasons that we put on this festival. We have a really great core audience, but we really want to expand and show the rest of Hamilton that may not already be coming to the gallery what we have to offer. And one of the ways that we encourage that is by offering a wide variety of events but also by offering free admission for the full 10 days. And we have extended hours as well. 
Do you think people really know or have an impression of what an art gallery is, is uh, you know, as opposed to what reality is? I don't think they do. I think that that's something that we're definitely working on kind of showing people. I think that a lot of people think of an art gallery as being a kind of stuffy place for only a certain kind of demographic. <laughs> but once you come into the AGH, you'll really see that it, it is a place for everyone. And we really try to challenge people's misconceptions about what an art gallery is. It really is a place for everyone and it you don't need to dress up. You don't need to be quiet. You can look around and explore and have joy and come come as you are. And Hamilton has had a vibrant arts community since its inception for uh, hundreds of years. It's been around for a long time. People it being has, interested. yeah. Hamilton is a really, really deep arts community. It's one of my personal favorite things about Hamilton. So you talked about multidisciplinary. So what does that mean? How does that change things from uh, that perspective? Uh, what can we hope to see? So the Art Gallery of Hamilton in its day-to-day -day operations functions primarily uh, with visual arts. Um, it's things that are hung on the wall that you can come and see and look mm -hmm. at. During this festival, we're able to expand out of that and include film and dance and music and theater, which are things that we don't necessarily offer day to day, but definitely want to highlight just as much as visual art. Because as I said earlier, Hamilton does have a really rich and deep arts community, and that doesn't just mean visual arts. The 10-day Festival of Music, Art, Performance, uh, running October 12th to the 21st, Art Gallery of Hamilton. And, of course, you can check out the website at artgalleryofhamilton.com. Jordan Delfs with his lead of festival operations with the Art Gallery of Hamilton. Jordan, good luck with it this year. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We remember, uh, obviously, uh, Hamilton, like many cities, towns, villages, uh, has a, a homeless issue. And we're seeing tents, attend encampments and parks and such. And, and how do you how do you resolve this? Where do you go? How do you move forward? Um, and then uh, the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, HATS, uh, came up with uh, what they thought was a solution. And then everything kind of went off the rails. I want to read you a uh, part of a message from uh, the Office of Mayor Andrea Horvath, the city of Hamilton. And this came out this morning. Uh, the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters Hats is a volunteer initiative founded to help support the crisis. And they have generously brought forward a proposal to provide warm, safe and temporary tiny, sh tiny shelters to help keep, uh, keep people safe and supported throughout the winter months. City staff brought a proposed site for council approval in August so that HATS could conduct necessary diligence and make an informed decision about their next step, focused on the best interest of the unhoused and neighboring communities. Uh, I thank HATS for their partnership in this work with respect, uh, their conclusion that a temporary pilot at this site could not move forward. Uh, to talk more about all of this and what it means and, you know, really, where do we go from here? What is uh, the next step with all of this? Um, you know, it, many people are wondering how we kind of got to this point in the first place uh, without doing a little bit more consultation. Let's bring in uh, Dan Bedness, uh, board chair, board of directors for the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters and with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
I, I am. Uh, I am a busy uh, man uh, the, today, as you can imagine. But uh, Scott, thank <laughs> you for having imagine. me on uh, your show. Appreciate it. Obviously, Dan, this was, you know, uh, hearts in the right place, trying to do the right thing. Seemed like a great idea. And then it went off the rails. What happened? Well, um, you know, I have to say the city had the best intentions in mind. They were trying to find, you know, a readily available site for us to implement our solution. They fully endorse our model. And as do all of our partners and many others in the public, um, but um, they picked a site um, hoping it would be ready for winter. And so that narrowed their selection process down, I believe. Um, as you know, we had a number of sites uh, proposed, but having it ready for this winter, I think, was uh, paramount in their minds. And so they had their best, you know, best intentions. Um, we indicated the moment they advised us uh, that it was a go from council, um, we immediately said, whoa, we got to do our due diligence. They fully appreciated that. And we immediately went into the due diligence mode. And it is through that process that we have come to the conclusion today. And that is, <laughs> there's a, there's quite a few factors at play. But when we got down to it, it really said, you know, we have to be fiscally responsible. And um, the timelines are, are being stretched now that we had to extend the outreach to the community, which was the responsible thing to do. We could uh, see at our at the August 26th and the September 11th meeting, there was a definitely a need to um, uh, engage with the community and go further. Uh, and we even um, altered our outreach approach to try to accommodate the voices uh, of as many as we could from the community. And that's, and we ended up where we are today. You, as you mentioned, you had a list of sites. This was not one of them. Um, and, and then you said that it wouldn't be ready. So can you give us, break that down a bit? What what did this site well, have that yours didn't have? What what, what needed well, to be done? Each, each of the sites over the two years we've been at this, each of the sites have had different limitations to them. And um, the city proposed this one because it felt it had a minimal number of limitations, um, some of which is uh, a lot of which is to do with the technical infrastructure of the actual location, you know, being paved, uh, uh, having good drainage, right. et cetera, good access, those kind of things. So it was in that context that the city approached us. And of course, we're looking to establish the village and we said yeah we'll 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 take a look at it and um and that's what we did we undertook our examination um and only recently came to the conclusion the costs are are just going to be too high basically our timeline has extended to the point where we cannot uh provision before uh winter now and given the investment levels that we're talking about, um, the cost, uh, to be there for only one winter doesn't make fiscal sense. It doesn't, it doesn't wash. So we have a responsibility to, 
to um, the prospective village members. We have a responsibility to the community at large and donors and our partners. And we have to be fiscally responsible. So tough decision. As you can imagine, it's a tough decision because we've been at this for two years. And um, uh, it, it wasn't easy. Would it have been better to go to one of the other sites first? I mean, you were saying the costs were too high, so this didn't really seem like the right site anyway. Obviously, um, you know, the residents were quite upset about this. You, uh, what's the difference in cost between where you were or where you wanted to be and, and, and this location? What what would uh, it, it seems? What are the costs that would be too high? Well, well, the, you're, you're dealing with you're dealing with costs like uh, let's say uh, three hundred thousand dollars for a communal unit, which has your washrooms and common area and your laundry facilities, etc., all within a unit. But it's three hundred thousand dollars. Now you look at that and you say, uh, so in other words, it can't be portable. It's got to be there for a while. Yeah, uh, to really be cost effective, and, and we look at, right. at aspects of that. But back to the other sites, the other sites. Uh, uh, some of them perhaps could be readied, but not by this winter. And so that, I believe, is the rationale that the city used to look at one that they thought would be suitable. And, and you know, um, they come to you, they present that, and we, kept, we get that um, without having any due diligence first. And we take a look at it and we say, you know what, we'll give it a look. And so that's what we did. Uh, what would you do differently now after this exercise? Well, um, our, our forte has always been, you know, like we're going to reach out to, we're going to look at various candidates. We assess them. And then we look at the length of time and the investment for each of those prospective candidate sites and then we would narrow it down, but we would we would make sure as we as we did in a previous site, we make sure we engage with the community prior to actually selecting the site. So we would do that um, and follow due process. Uh, what happens now, Dan? We've heard that Kitchener Waterloo has a model that seems to be working. Anything to learn from that? What, what's next? really like the Kitchener-Waterloo model. It actually um, mirrors a lot of what we have taken as best practices over the last two years to formulate what we think are is a leading-edge uh, temporary supportive housing solution. So they've got the central communal unit. Um, a while back, we had started out with individual units. Um, uh, so but what's the difference? What, so what's the difference, Dan? What's the difference, Dan? Before what, I'm sorry, but I'm limited on time here. What's the difference from yeah. what they're doing and what you are doing? Was it just location? It it is primarily location because the model in Waterloo is very very similar to ours it's it's location plus um uh, where was other. where's the one is the other one in kitchener located near residential uh no it's not uh better tent city i think is what you're referring to and better tent city started up about three and a half years ago and it's in a more in i would suggest a more industrial type setting right uh, in that particular one um and Herb Street, Waterloo, the newer one, um, 
is is at the end of a transit line uh, so that's and kind of, so uh, winter is coming dan so what's what's the short-term solution here what, what, what short, do we do now well the short term for us is we asked the city to share with us their winter program and they've got an extensive one and we want to see um i'm going to be talking with our uh, leadership team and other board members uh, to see how we can dovetail somewhat to help at least a few uh, village members who didn't have the opportunity or won't have the opportunity um, in the near term. So um, we'll see what we can what we can do in that regard. So we're start we're going to start that conversation as soon as um, early next week when we have our weekly uh, leadership team meeting. Dan Bedness with us, board chair, board of directors for the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, HATS, uh, the pilot project off, and now it's uh, other options. Dan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you for the time. Remember, uh, it was a few months ago that we got word, and, and again, nobody seemed to know in the Prime Minister's office until it had happened, uh, because although the uh, office staff seemed to get the message, none of these messages seemed to get to the actual ministers or Prime Minister or whoever, and this in the case of the transfer of Paul Bernardo. Uh, <laughs> do you need to say anything more about Paul Bernardo? Uh, declared a dangerous offender, yet gets moved from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison. Uh, safety minister at the time, Marco Mendicino, knew nothing about it and, and, until uh, everybody else did. And then, of course, fell on his sword during a cabinet shuffle. And we've heard nothing more about it. Let's bring in Dane Lloyd, member of parliament for Sturgeon River Parkland, Alberta, and shadow minister for emergency preparedness. And here now, Dane, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Yep. So, Dane, it seemed that we, uh, the government jettisoned Marco Mendicino, and that was supposed to be it. The story's gone. We haven't heard much about this, certainly as far as an explanation as to what happened. What are your thoughts? Well, that seems pretty deliberate on their part. Uh, back in June, uh, just as Parliament was wrapping up, we were pushing to have meetings to investigate this Bernardo transfer, and the Liberals cancelled the meeting out from under us. We tried to get meetings over the summer to investigate this, the Liberals wouldn't let us have the meetings, and for the past three weeks in Parliament, Conservatives have been fighting to get an investigation into this, and every time we try to include the Minister of Public Safety, victims' representatives, they vote against us every time. Uh, I remember when the story broke that uh, they didn't seem to know much about it, that even though they had been delivered uh, memos or sent messages from um, corrections or what have you, it just didn't seem to get to uh, the minister or the prime minister till it was actually happening or happened. Uh, do we have any more information on that? In Because there's been many situations where the information just doesn't get to the government, whether it's, you know, uh, election interference or this was another great example. Do we know how the, the, the train of information here, the trail? Well, that's part of what we need to investigate because we know for a fact that Correction Services Canada let the Prime Minister's office know, they let the Minister of Public Safety's office know. These are political staffers that they were informing. And the question we have to ask is, did the political staffers tell the minister? And if they didn't tell the minister, why didn't they tell the minister? Now, we do know from ATIPS that we've sent into Correction Services Canada is that they were trying to keep this transfer low profile. They did not want Canadians to know that this transfer was happening until it was taking place. In fact, they didn't even let the victims' families know until the day the transfer was happening. So there was a pretty coordinated effort from this government to keep this under wraps. 
That being said, Dan, it certainly looks like this was all following procedure because the the policy has changed quite a bit. It's a bit more lenient than it used to be. Well, and I think that's a problem that we have to look at as parliamentarians. We have to look at legislation like Bill C-83, which the Liberals passed in 2019, which said that Correction Services Canada needs to put offenders in the least restrictive conditions necessary for public safety. You know, this is about public safety, but it's also about decency. I mean, this criminal is the worst of the worst of the worst. He's a dangerous offender. He needs to be in maximum security for life. And if Correction Services Canada believes that his classification needs to be downgraded, that he needs to get more privileges in a medium security prison or in some time in the future, possibly a minimum security prison, I think we need we as politicians need to take a stand and say this is not acceptable. I think at the time, Correction said that this was the best place for him. He's there with uh, other sexual offenders. The the safety process, the, the security process is just the same as a maximum, and that this is the most efficient way to do it. He's there with other people that are like him. Is that any any excuse? I don't think there's any consolation for folks on this. I mean... I think the fact that Correction Services Canada tried to hide this until the last possible moment, that needs to be looked into. We need to get answers. We need to know what the Minister of Public Safety knew. And we need to know, uh, you know, how the legislation can be changed to ensure that society sends a strong message of condemnation uh, for killers like this uh, Paul Bernardo and to ensure that he gets maximum security prison for life. So what's next here, Dane? Because obviously this was voted down. So what's next? Well, we're going to keep fighting a committee until uh, until we get a successful resolution on this. Uh, so we have votes on the committee. We have the ability to uh, make this an issue, and we're going to keep making this an issue. Uh, we're definitely going to make this an issue by having interviews with uh, radio stations such as yourself. Uh, we need Canadians to uh, make themselves heard on this. We need Canadians to tell this government that they want an investigation so that they can know the truth about how this transfer happened, why this transfer happened. And what this government's going to do to make sure that things like this don't happen again. Dane Lloyd with us, Member of Parliament, Sturgeon River, Parkland, Alberta, Shadow Minister for Emergency Preparedness. Dane, thanks for the time. Uh, Have a great long weekend. Thanks so much. You as well. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As we heard earlier when uh, we had a representative from HATS, uh, that that uh, tiny cabins project in the North End is uh, done, over and done with. Um, initially not on their list of preferred sites, then the city said it was good. And, um, and, and now we're hearing, due to costs being too high, that it has been cancelled. Um, this was only supposed to be a temporary situation, and obviously, if you're going to spend this kind of money, it probably doesn't uh, isn't cost effective to be temporary. That's what they had to say. Let's listen to the other side. Schroeder Nichols with us, representative of Hats Off, and is here now. Schroeder, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So, Schroeder, uh, what happened? Your thoughts of where we are right now? So, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of went on in my head today after hearing this this news, if you will. Um, you know, first and foremost, there, there's some elation here in, in the neighborhood and, and within, you know, the groups that are that are active down here. And that elation simply comes from the fact that now we're being listened to. And, you, you know, I, I just want to point out that none of, none of our arguments were ever with HATS. HATS itself is a wonderful idea. 
and it's, it's a wonderful project. It just shouldn't be housed within a neighborhood. And that, that yeah. doesn't just mean the North End. That means any neighborhood. And, and I think most people can agree with that. So, and, you know, there's, there's elation. And then there's, okay, so that's is now back to square one, which is it, in and of itself kind of a, a sad thing. And it's interesting, Schroeder, because I talked to Hatsub uh, earlier, and we talked about the Kitchener-Waterloo project, and that's exactly what I said, um, that, you know, this model seems to be working, but it's not near a residential area, it's more in an industrial area, and they agreed with that. So it's kind of odd that we ended up where we where we were. Yeah, you know what, I, I don't think they'll come out and say it, but let's call a spade a spade here. Hats never wanted to be in the Strong Linear Park. Um, it was it was never on their, their original... Uh, sites. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, I, our counselor has said, well, staff said we're doing that. So that's what we're doing. You know, that being said, our, our counselor had the ability, he knew in plenty of time, he had the ability to engage with the community, much like they did in Ward 1, much like they did in Ward 3, when, you know, Hatch was deemed, was destined to go there. It never happened here. So that's really what got people upset around here. That there was no no engagement, no, no no talk whatsoever, and when we tried to engage with them, there's been nothing, absolutely nothing. They they uh, told them. Go ahead. Hats was saying that the city wanted this because it was something. The other sites uh, they couldn't get ready as quickly. They didn't have what they needed. This site did apparently, uh, and that's why it was picked, I guess, uh, rather than the other ones. But clearly. Uh, and even when you come to the, you know, the costs are too high. This is a temporary project. Even things like this could have probably been figured out a lot earlier. Well, yeah, I mean, the, so this, the city says that this had all the infrastructure in place. Well, we know that not to be true. We knew that not to be true to begin with. That was pointed at the at the initial meeting that was held. That you know, you're actually setting them up to fail, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate. But that's what's happened. And, you know, uh, all, all through it, there's been absolutely no engagement whatsoever. Yeah, there's been some social media posts from our counselor and in the rest of the council, for that matter. But nothing really to say, hey, you know what, what, what do you guys think? And again, our the issues were never with hats. The, the project itself is a lovely project. And in fact, yeah. we, we were planning on meeting this coming Wednesday. And, and hats is very aware that we're planning on meeting this coming Wednesday. So the timing to me is a little suspect. But this coming Wednesday, you know, come and join us at the Strong Linear Park and, you know, hear, hear, what, hear what people are saying, hear what people think. But more importantly, you know, I, we're, we're aiming to, to raise money for hats because we want it to work, just not in a neighborhood. Do you think this is the city just looking for a quick solution? One hundred percent. Unequivocally, there's, there's no possible way that you can tell me that they did their due diligence. One of, one of the yeah. questions that I did pose to our counselor was, yes, hats has to do due diligence, but do you not as well? And obviously that didn't happen. And, you know, uh, no, no blame to staff at all. Uh, no, no blame to, uh, to anybody there because, mm-hmm. yeah, they're trying to, you know, get things done. I think, though, at the upper levels of, 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 of the city, it, it was a way to, you know, tick a box and look what I did. Well, that's not going to work uh, mm-hmm. in this neighborhood, as it's not going to work in any neighborhood in the city. How do you explain how the neighborhood came together on this, Schroeder? Do you know what? Here's the thing. <laughs> this, this neighborhood, um, I've, been, I've been here for 53 years. Most, mm. of the, most of the people that live down here have been here for a long, long, long time. We all know each other. We talk on a daily basis. You know, I, I walk to my mother's house. I see people. We talk. I have family in the neighborhood. Everybody has family. We all talk. 
right? This was one of those points where everybody was on this. I, I can't say everybody because that's not fair. Um, but the majority of us were all on the same page saying, hey, no, no, this, this can't happen. So, uh, you know, a few guys got together and started putting some, uh, some, some, some pen to paper, if you will. And uh, here we are. So, again, the election uh, what is the- being heard. So, uh, and I wanted to point that out. You you do see this as a victory, and again, not because you're against the Hats projects. It's just because finally someone listened to you. Correct. That, without a doubt, that that would be sort of my 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 thought. Um, and I I think I can speak for a number of people in the neighborhood on that. Listen, if if we didn't if we didn't speak out, we wouldn't get heard. You know, this is no this is no different than what the city did to the province with the Greenbelt issues. You know, they fought back. And look what happened there. So unfortunately, we had to do that to the city to get to this this position. And this is where we are now. Is this over for the North End now? Is this issue closed? No. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't believe so. Because there's a few issues. One is the HATS issue. Is, is, is that issue closed for the North End? I would say... It's closed as far as locating in the North End, but it's not closed because we do want to see it succeed. The yeah. other issue is engagement and being able to call our counselor and having our counselor come to us because that's not happening. And, and, then, and then you look at, you know, the other neighborhood associations that are around. Where were they through all this? Absolutely nowhere to be seen. Hmm. So this was a way not for us to take over, but this is a way for us to step up and go, okay, there's, there's, there's there's more than one group around here. And so, Schro- you know, we took the mantle and here we are. Schroeder Nichols with us, representative of Hats Off, the North End. Um, again, not so much against the project, but certainly the lack of consultation. And in the end, we're heard. Schroeder, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you very much. Have a great day. All right. According to the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, Canada is building fewer homes today than during the pandemic shutdown. Let's bring in Mike Collins-Williams, CEO, West End Home Builders Association, and is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you very much for having me. Happy Thanksgiving. Back at you, Mike. Is this all about cost? Is this all about interest rates and such? Not entirely, but that is a a big reason for uh, for the challenges. Um, you know, a, a few years ago, uh, interest rates were a fraction of the price, um, and despite some of the challenges in the pandemic, uh, especially some supply chain and disruptions, uh, there were a lot of shovels hitting the ground, which was great for economic recovery. You know, a lot of sectors of the economy were shut down. Uh, but construction was still moving full steam ahead, which, you know, kept people employed, kept jobs happening and, and tax revenue for governments. But there's been a world of change as the Bank of Canada has increased rates the last few years. Boy, this is one of those, if we had only did back then what we were supposed to do, we'd be in far better shape right now. Hindsight would have been 2020 here, Mike. Well, you know, a, a borrower making $100,000, 20% down and no debt on a 30-year mortgage. In September 2016, they would have qualified for a $796,000 mortgage at 2.34%. Fast forward, you know, to a year and a half ago, February 2022, that purchaser would have qualified for about $600,000 at 5.25. Well, when you throw on the stress test, you walk in today, 
you'd qualify for only 466,000 at 8.14%. Um, I don't know many housing mm. units going for $466,000. And, you know, that's a mm. pretty good salary with a pretty big down payment. Uh, we hear a lot of politicians use the term affordable housing. We got to build affordable, but what is what, what is even affordable when we have uh, such a uh, a low supply? Is it going to take like a good decade before we we seems we see some uh, affordable homes as they call them? Well, new housing construction is slowing down at the very moment that we've massively increased immigration. We yeah. need to double the supply of new homes being built in Hamilton, uh, across Ontario, and, and across the country for that matter. And in the moment that we need double housing supply, construction costs have gone through the roof. Uh, they're up over 50% since they were pre-pandemic. Um, approvals are hard to come by. We have a great debate happening in Hamilton now about the boundary expansion, which we thought we resolved a couple of years ago. Um, politicians don't seem to want... Um, people to be able to have homes with backyards, yet all of them seem to live in single-family homes with backyards, so it's a little hypocritical. And earlier this week, planning committee in Hamilton denied two 30-story buildings in downtown Hamilton because they cast a shadow on a park. So they don't seem to want the intensification either. And then as we started this conversation, it's, it's the interest rates are absolutely crippling. And it's amazing how some have just conceded defeat here. I mean, I've even talked to academics that say, you know, kids just got to get used to the fact that they can't, they're not going to be able to have what their parents had. And it's like, you, good luck telling my kid that, uh, you know, they, they won't put up with that. Talent is mobile. So they will move yeah. somewhere else. Um, yeah. you know, some people will stay. Uh, but in the last couple of years, the fastest growing regions of Ontario have been places like Shelburne and Tilsonburg. Um, some people want to have choice for their families and they will drive vast distances to be able to get the housing they prefer, or they'll leave Canada altogether. We run the risk of a brain drain of young talent choosing, um, you know, Austin, Texas or Boston or something like that rather than staying here. Does the U S have this problem, Mike? Some of the coastal cities, uh, San Francisco, you know, California, the, the housing situation is is terrible. Uh, and, and on the East Coast, some of the larger cities, um, the planning approvals and the system is much different in a lot of the central U.S. cities. Um, but, you know, the most the least affordable cities in North America are not San Francisco and New York. It's it's Vancouver, Toronto and Hamilton's right up there in terms of what the average income is versus what the average cost of a house is. Um, but you know, they've got some of the same challenges on, on, you know, the cost of lumber, cost of concrete and, and the interest rates, um, and going back to the interest rates, it's not just those trying to get mortgages when you've got big projects that are hundred million, 200 million that, you know, these are big housing projects and that's what we need to address the supply construction financing's crippling. You can't build a high rise in a year. You can't build a new subdivision in a year. These are multi-year projects, and those high interest rates are affecting that. If you're going in, and, and these are risky projects, the banks don't loan money at low rates. So construction financing, you're looking at 8, 9, 10, you know, even 11 or 12%, whereas three or four years ago, it was 3 or 4%. And you stretch that out over a number of years, you're adding millions and millions, if not tens of millions, to the cost of bringing new housing supply online for just one project. 
the federal government now sees this as a problem, and they're uh, making announcement after announcement today in Vaughn, uh, another one in London last week, or, or what have you. Is this just window dressing? It's helpful because not only are they bringing money to the table to pay for some critical infrastructure to support housing, they're actually starting to push municipalities around a little bit and making requirements for municipalities to change their zoning. Um, so they've required in a number of municipalities, they've sent letters back saying what you have right now is not good enough. You have to uh, eliminate ex- exclusionary zoning. You have to allow for up to four stories in all neighborhoods and four units on a lot. And what's interesting is a few weeks ago, there was supposed to be a big announcement uh, in Vancouver for significant federal funding as part of this housing accelerator fund. uh, fund, And they canceled the press conference the day of because Burnaby and Surrey were about to introduce development charge increases. The federal government said, why are we giving you money to support housing when you're about to increase taxes on housing? Wow. Uh, so there's um, an interesting dynamic at play. Uh, and a self-inflicted wound here. We seem to pretend like this is a brand new problem post-pandemic and all that is done is accentuated. Uh, how long have we had a housing shortage? Because we've been talking about this for a couple of decades. It's been getting worse over the last decade or so. Um, you know, housing's always been a bit of a challenge. Uh, politically speaking, most politicians uh don't want to approve new housing yeah, they don't want to build high density medium density or low density um for better or for worse planning and housing and development we're in the business of change building new housing changes neighborhoods or changes you know what's there to something else and and mm-hmm. people don't like change typically even if it's needed um so there's tremendous pressure on politicians to say no and we hear no a whole lot more than yes uh, is this yes to housing? Is this something, Mike, that should be addressed like every year? You know, there shouldn't be trend cycles. There should be a certain minimum amount done every year so we don't fall behind like this. The provincial government in Ontario uh, has set housing targets for municipalities across the province for the next decade in an attempt to build the 1.5 million homes that we need. That's that's doubling production. In Hamilton, that would be 47,000 units over the next decade, meaning we need to start construction on 4,700 every year. Um, you know, Hamilton Council has approved more than 4,700 thus far this year, but that doesn't get shovels in the ground uh, when the tax rates are so high and when interest rates are so high. If you buy a new home or a new condo in Hamilton, 20 to 25% of that is straight up taxes to the municipality, to the province, to the federal government. Um, and it's like a syntax. We desperately need more housing. Mm, mm. But governments treat housing as if it's booze or cigarettes with incredibly high tax rates. Mike Collins Williams with us, CEO of the West End Home Builders Association. Unfortunately, we are building fewer homes now than we did during the economic shutdown of the global pandemic. Mike, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thank you very much. Happy Thanksgiving. Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read me your Hamilton Spectator. A preview right now. Good afternoon, Scott. How are you today? I am well. Happy Thanksgiving. Back at you. Uh, unfortunately, the weather isn't going to hang on for us, but boy, wouldn't that have been nice if it did? Hey, but I you know what? We, we were spoiled. We were spoiled, and I will not complain because uh, no. you know what's coming.
All right. Uh, I see on your show you've got uh, stuff in regard to um, the tiny homes and such. We talked about that earlier today. Boy, uh, heart's in the right place, but what a screw-up this turned out to be. It really, it doesn't look good on the city to... It keeps pointing back to the city, doesn't it? We have well, both sides on it. Well, I read the, the note from the mayor, and it's like they gave the permission for this site for hats to do its due diligence. And I'm like, wow. But but the, the city, like the problem with this, among other problems with it, is that you got the sense, I went to the first community meeting and Hats was sort of, not begrudgingly, sort of almost embarrassingly answering a question saying, yeah, this really doesn't hit almost any of the things that we want. We took it because they told us this is the final, you know, this is the first spot that we can get our hands on. But really, if you go down the list of criteria, almost none of them work. Well, that was a bad start. But the worst thing is to me, is that the way this thing then was pushed that ended up making all the people in the neighborhood look like a bunch of absolute Yahoo maniac hooligans when, you know, it's, it was so interesting to me that we had meetings canceled because staff and counselors were concerned for their safety. Yeah. And meanwhile, the reason the neighbors are upset is because they are concerned for their safety. One side, we cancel meetings and protect them. The other side, we say, ah, deal with it. It'll be fine. This is, this is a terrible look when you basically don't listen because they didn't listen ahead of time. They didn't consult. So you end up putting people into a bad spot where they then have to be a little bit angry to get attention. They have to be loud to get attention. And then you paint them basically as being these maniacs. And I don't believe that the people who live in the North End are maniacs. I believe Mm -hmm. they are just like everyone else. If you put a situation in someone's neighborhood with no consultation and lots of reason for them to potentially be concerned, I think most people would react exactly the same way. I, I think the city just, they, they made a bad choice and then doubled down on the bad choice and then tripled down on the bad choice and finally had to bail because the people who they're trying to get this for said, yeah, it's not really working. Shouldn't you have, shouldn't you have lined this up and made sure hats was like 1000% in before you go down this path? Absolutely. And we talked to uh, somebody from Hats earlier today, and they're citing the reason that the costs were too high because they have to build a certain amount of infrastructure, and it's not worth it for one year, a pilot project. So this was never a good idea from the start. I don't believe that this was going to be a one-year pilot. Well, it's a one-year pilot project, but if it had worked, yeah, it was not. I mean, if it had been, and when, when I say worked, Scott, like if it had not been terrible, so I, I don't, it didn't even, I don't think have to have been a raging success. If, if it was moderately okay, the city would have kept the thing going if they could have. But once again, um, you know, these kind of things, if you're going to fire up an entire neighborhood and make them concerned, I think you should probably have your ducks in a row before you do that, because it made a lot of people angry. It made a lot of people feel like they weren't being listened to. It made a lot of people look bad. And now where are you? You're back to square one, but you've also now, Scott, That's it put for yourself us. in a Thanks position for listening. where As always, I don't we know leave it to that you, you get another swing and a miss on the last yeah. word. <laughs> yeah. the What's city. next? Yeah. You, yeah. you cannot do this again 
and have another whiff. You now have taken away your margin for error and wherever you decide to put this. And look, I'm not in principle entirely opposed to the idea of tiny shelters. I think there's some benefit there, but you got to pick the right spot. And I think the city now is in a position where they are up against the wall because they have to find the right spot. You can't do this to another neighborhood and then back off again or, or, or worse, jam it through in the next neighborhood who is now saying, well, wait, why didn't you do it there? Uh, and, and, you know, both sides can, you know, will bring up Kitchener-Waterloo. Oh, that's the model we're patterning, up, uh, patterning, uh, patterning this after. That's who we're following. And if you look at the Kitchener-Waterloo model, it's in an industrial area. It's not, so right away, it's, no, it's not patterned yeah. after that. We were talking about this on the show last week. Uh, this, this very night last week, we were talking about this thing. And uh, Kathy Renwald was in, who had written about that, gone out yep. and looked at it from the Bay Observer. And, and yep. you know, she points out that one really is in the middle of nowhere on vacant yeah. land. Now it does look like a prison camp, but it's also not near all the other challenges that you will have. It's, th- there are challenges with something like this. They are difficult to pull off. I don't think anyone questions that now, but now, as I say, now maybe you have to, if, if you're Hamilton, maybe you have to look at the Kitchener model a little more closely and say, is there a neighborhood that we can put this in that we're not going to have the same problems or do we simply have to get moving and do something like what Waterloo has done? I think that's what I, I think this was all rushed. Uh, and now again, we're getting closer to cooler weather and this is not going away. I well, have a feeling this is going to get uglier before it gets better. Well, and by the description in the meeting and look, I'm not taking any away from hat. This is not, I don't think this is a hats problem. This is a city no, that made a mistake. I agree. Um, I agree. But based on what hats described with the time it would take to put everything together. I don't know, based on what they told us in that first meeting, I don't know if you can now have it in time for this winter, unless you could probably start it if you wanted to get going, you might have it ready for middle of January or something or February. But as far as having it ready in for, for when the first snow flies or when the temperatures get cool, I, based on what they said back then, it doesn't sound like it's doable now. All right, uh, Scott Radley with us. It continues after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks so much. Have a great uh, weekend. Great holiday weekend. And when are we going to talk about the Bulldogs? I don't know. <laughs> maybe when maybe when they get back to Hamilton. This is yeah, this is this is becoming the thing. Well, every week, every day it'll be the Bulldogs right. discussion until it is. And then we go somewhere else. Exactly. All right. Thank you, Scott. Have, Have fun. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This is kind of long. I'll make it short and sweet as I can. It's from Jean. Uh, and she says, good afternoon, Scott. On the eve of Thanksgiving weekend, I have a great deal to be thankful for. I hope you have also. You have a love of lovely family and sound like a proud, dedicated father. I was born in the late depression and then came the war. I remember rationing in hard times. My parents never being able to buy a home until 1954. And then Hurricane Hazel came. And I married a wonderful man, three wonderful children, attend to all my needs. I have no complaints. May you and your family enjoy your Thanksgiving weekend and God bless you and yours. Gene from Lowville. Keep right except to pass. 